0: Amen, amen. Good morning, church. Good morning, balcony. Happy Labor Day to you. It is great to be together in the house of the Lord. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Acts chapter 17, verse 10. Acts 17, verse 10, that's on page 926 in the church Bibles under the chair in front of you. We're carrying on this morning with the story of Paul's second missionary journey. And we're looking particularly at his encounter with the noble and discerning Bereans. Uh, the Bereans are often held up as a model of how to listen and hear the word of the Lord. So John Stott, for example, says here, Luke obviously admires their enthusiasm for Paul's preaching together with their industry and unprejudiced openness in studying the scriptures. They combined receptivity with critical questioning, close quote, that's, that's good listening. And that's why we've got camps named after the Bereans. We've got publishing houses named after the Bereans, lots of churches. It's hard to go into a medium-sized city in North America and not find at least one Berean Baptist church or Berean Brethren Chapel or something of that nature. Uh, They're held up as an example. We love the Bereans. And uh, of course, if you travel in Christian circles for any length of time, eventually you're gonna sit in a Bible study or you're going to sit under a sermon where someone is telling you to be like the Bereans. But how do you do that? And why is it so incredibly hard? Those are the big questions that I want to wrestle with this morning, and my plan is to look at those questions in reverse order. But let's begin with the text. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I mentioned, this story is usually held up as an example for us to consider in terms of how to listen to and hear the word of the Lord. The Bereans are way better listeners than the Thessalonians, the, That was the; those were the folks that Paul had visited prior. Uh, they were bad listeners. They got themselves all riled up. They, they're the classic um, sort of temper tantrum listeners. They stuck their fingers in their ears and started, you know, making loud noises. We're not going to listen to you. And they stirred up a mob and drove Paul out of town. And of course, they're way better listeners than the Corinthians, although we're kind of thankful that the Corinthians were bad listeners, aren't they? Because uh, as a result of, of, you know, making a complete hash of, of the gospel, we got Two clarifying letters that are really, really helpful. No letters to the Bereans uh, because they were very good listeners. So thankful for, for that. Uh, but, you know, we're thankful for those churches that weren't very good listeners as well because we get clarification. But the Bereans are held up in the book of Acts as a rare, shining example of, of what it looks like to listen and, and to receive the word of the Lord. Rare rare in the book of Acts. It's hard to think of another church that listened this well, or another group of people, I should say, that listened this well. But even rare, I think we would all agree today. And so I think it would be helpful for us to begin there. I want to start by asking the question, why is it so hard for us to be like the Bereans? Moving from the general, things that are true of all of us, to things that are true particularly of us in this time and culture today, I think would be a helpful way to do it. And so let's do that. Let's move from the general to the specific. And when we do, I think the first thing that we would need to acknowledge is it's hard to be like the Bereans because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's true for all people everywhere and every time and place after the fall. I'm citing Jeremiah 17.9 there. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? According to the Bible, there's something fundamentally wrong with the human heart. We were made to live happily, peacefully, prosperously under the word of God. We learned that in Genesis. uh, As you read Genesis 1 and 2, you get a picture of of the design or God's intention for human beings. We were supposed to be a sort of ruling class creature. We were supposed to be under God and over everything else. So sometimes you'll hear Bible teachers and theologians refer to human beings as vice Regents, male and female, made in the image and likeness of God. That's what that means. So there's a sense in which we are like all the other creatures in the world, but there's also a sense in, in that unlike all these other creatures, we are also like God, image and likeness. So we're perfect translators. We were literally designed by God and given the capacity to speak to him and also to speak to creation that's what it means to be a priest. A priest, the, the word priest comes from the Latin, uh, and that literally means bridge. A priest is a bridge. A priest speaks to God on behalf of humans and to humans on behalf of God. Well, we, we were designed actually as a, as a priestly species. We were designed to speak to God on behalf of creation and to creation on behalf of God. So it's odd that we're so bad at this. Uh, One wonders if this is our purpose, if this was our design, if God made us to do this very thing, then why are we so very bad at it? And that's where Jeremiah 17.9 comes in handy. It's actually even more clear in the ESV translation. Uh, Let me read it to you there. The ESV has this as, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? I think sick is maybe a little more helpful, because sick implies that if we were healthy, then this wouldn't be so hard for us. Sick also implies that maybe we can get better. Maybe we could be healed. Maybe we could get back at this. So that's the issue fundamentally in the Bible, and that's why good listeners are rare. There are very few people in the Bible after the fall, after Genesis 3, who seem able or inclined to listen to the word of the Lord. The word of God is is given but people don't understand it, they resent it, they suppress it, or sometimes they just ignore it. We think of that story, uh, if you remember that story uh, in the Bible, where King Josiah, in the days of King Josiah, they actually found the word of the Lord hidden away in a storage closet in the basement. Can you imagine that? And uh, our best recollection or our best reconstruction there is that they're not necessarily the whole Bible, but they had lost uh, what we call today Deuteronomy. Can you imagine if you neglected your Bible so thoroughly that you lost an entire book of the canon, and and like somebody's cleaning out the you know the chip drawer downstairs, and and they're like, wow, there's a Gospel of Matthew, and that's literally what's what's happening in that story. It's it's preserved in the Bible, it's shared in the Bible to remind us that there was a time when the people of God so neglected the Word of God that they lost an entire book of the Bible. message is is pretty clear. They did not want to hear it, and that was true then, and that is even more true now. Ever since the fall, where human beings decided that they wanted to determine right and wrong without reference to the Word of God, ever since then, we've been very good at not hearing it. In fact, I, I, I think that's probably a better way to say it. It's not that we struggle to hear the Word of God. It's that we're actually very good, very skilled, highly developed at not hearing it. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, 18, human beings suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So it's not that they can't hear it, it's that they've become very good at not hearing it. They work very hard at not hearing it. That's the default human condition. We come out of the womb now very good at not hearing the word of the Lord. That's true for everybody. Every human being after Genesis 3. And that's why it's hard for all people everywhere in every century to be like the noble Bereans. But as I mentioned, I think, if anything, it's harder in our day and age. Let me walk you uh, through a few reasons for that. One of the reasons uh, it's so hard for us to be like the noble Bereans, to be good listeners, is that we don't have a pope. Now, I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek. Don't tweet that or write that out. You know, today's takeaway, bring back the pope. No, no. I'm just saying it is a real factor, though it is it is a real factor. Historians will tell you that uh, one of the reasons why bishops rose to prominence. So you know you you can see the word bishop in the New Testament just means overseer, right? Uh, Episkopos. It just means overseer. Uh, Probably the best English translation of that Greek word would be superintendent. So churches had superintendents. Okay, big deal but the, but then uh, you know fast forward a couple hundred years past the new testament era and all of a sudden you got you know pointy hats and incense and what's going on and and we got, the bishops now have a lot of authority they're functioning almost like they start even to be referred to as princes of the church and then the pope is kind of you know the first among many he's like the king of the church how do we get there well the answer is the church started getting bombarded by all kinds of heresies there there was apostolic faith and then it seemed like every week there was some deviation from that that was coming at the church from the outside. And so they gave individuals power and authority basically to function as gatekeepers. So the job of the bishop in the, you know, second, third, fourth, fifth century was to function as a gatekeeper. All these crazy ideas are coming, and the bishop would stand there and say, no, 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 yes. And, and this, so this is a voice we'll listen to. And, and that's where the whole idea came from. And, and of course, you'll know that uh, at the Protestant Reformation, we decided that actually, uh, while that idea may have been helpful, the bishops and the pope and that, that kind of approach had actually become a barrier to doctrinal faithfulness as opposed to a, to a guardian. And so we got rid of the Pope. We got rid of the, that, that kind of authoritative magisterium, a, a body that had the authority to, to play traffic cop, to decide who was in and who, who was out. And we said, no, no, no we're not going to give anybody the power to do that. We're going to do that ourselves. Okay. All right. So now we're responsible for sorting out the wheat and the chaff. Because. It's not as though if you get rid of the Pope, all the silly stuff stops coming. As soon as you don't have a traffic cop, as soon as you don't have a gatekeeper, you understand that now your front door is wide open, and through that front door will blow every wind of strange and stupid. And so now it's up to us. We, we said we'll be responsible to sort through the wheat and the chaff. That's a big job, and that leads us to our third problem, It's hard for us to be like the noble Bereans because we don't actually read our Bibles. Look again at Acts 17, verse 11. Luke says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So these people were daily in the word. This wasn't a once a week thing for them, this wasn't a once a year thing for them. These people knew the scriptures. So they knew when they were hearing the word of God and when they were hearing heresy and nonsense. Probably all heard the illustration uh, before about how uh, the treasury people train their people to spot a counterfeit bill, right? The treasury people are are taught to study real hundred dollar bills, to to know them like the back of their hand, right? Because if, if you know A real $100 bill, if you know the color, the contour, the texture, the paint, the script, and the security features, if you know that like the back of your hand, then you're not going to have any trouble whatsoever spotting counterfeits. That's the idea. And of course, it works exactly the same way when it comes to hearing and discerning the word of God. If you know what the Bible says, then you're going to be able to test the spirits, as John says. It's 1 John four one, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is one of the hardest things, I think, for very nice evangelical Christians like yourselves uh, to wrap your head around. This idea that not everybody who says that he speaks for Jesus actually does. In almost inevitably, or invariably, I should say, after I, you know, make mention of that from the pulpit, because there's so many passages that we're going to stumble on that seem to make that point, almost invariably after saying that, someone will come up a little bit offended. Say, pastor, it sounds like you're not supportive of of all the other pastors. It sounds like maybe you're you're actually suggesting that there might be some pastors in town who, who are preaching a false gospel, who are, you know, whether they know it or not working for the enemy. Pastor, I just, I'm a little taken aback by that. I'm like, to which I usually reply, just, just a reminder, I don't read, write the Bible. I just, you know, read it and, and, and explain it. That's everywhere in the Bible. Everywhere in the Bible, we're, we're warned that there are going to be true voices and false voices coming at us. And, and our job is to know which is which. And the only way you can do that is if you know, know, know the Bible. You've got to examine it. You've got to study it. You've got to memorize it, just like the Bereans are doing in this story. And that's the problem, because Christians in North America, by and large, aren't doing that. According to a recent LifeWay survey of church-going Protestants, this is a very select group of people, according to a survey of church-going Protestants in North America, only 32% of them are reading their Bibles every day. That's problematic. That's problematic. So th- this is not like a survey of anybody who checks the box uh, labeled Christian on a survey. One of the things we've figured out over the last decade is that there's a huge difference between people particularly in America who check the box Christian and those who actually go to church. And so they've started asking better questions. First question is do you go to are you a Christian? Yes. Okay, good. Next question is how often do you go to church? And they'll sort out those who go to church three, three times a month from everybody else because those are the only people who actually statistically act anything like Christians. And so this, these people, we're asking, church. so these are, these are the Navy SEALs of Christianity, right? Like this is the cream of the crop, the cream of the Christian crop, right? And we're asking these people how much they read their Bible, and they're saying 30%. Can I just put that out there? That's a problem? Like, so to use our Navy SEALs, like, like, imagine they did a survey of the Navy SEALs and found out only 32% of them could swim. <laughs> like, some admiral somewhere is getting fired over that, right? Because swimming is core to the function and identity of a Navy SEAL in the same way that reading your Bible is core to the function and identity of a Protestant Christian. That's literally who you are. Like, we said... 400-some years ago, we said, no, 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 no. From now on, the pope isn't deciding. We're all going to do this for ourselves. We're going to, like, read the Bible. We're going to discern the spirits. We're in charge. Thank you very much, pointy hat man. We're doing this. So we literally said, we're the Bible-reading. We don't need a pope people. As soon as you fire the pope, that obligates you to read your Bible. Can you just say amen if you get that? So then you've got to do that. The price you pay for no pope is reading and studying your Bible. And only a third of us are doing it. So that's a problem. That's a problem. That's why we're not doing very good at this whole Berean thing. The Bereans didn't have a pope, but they did have Bibles, and they were meeting together daily to study the Scriptures to see if these things were so. If we're not doing that, then we're not going to be able to function like they were doing. All right, fourthly, it's hard for us to be like the Bereans, to be noble and discerning listeners because of the Internet. The internet is a game changer, isn't it? I'll be honest with you, I wonder if the Bereans would have been any good as Bereans if they had had to contend with the internet. The internet is a game changer. The internet provides us with unlimited information with absolutely no curation. So to provide a comparison, I I, I didn't necessarily process this until I read the book by Jean Twenge uh, where she talked about the different experiences and technologies that shape the way people think. And one of the things she she mentioned for my generation, Gen X, we were the last analog generation, so if if you're roughly my age, um, we were the last generation to go to a library and look up things in a card catalog. Do you remember the card catalog? Glory be that was complicated, wasn't it? (laughs) Golly. woo! Um, But so we were the last, like kids today by the way, any sentence that begins in church with kids today is going to be a good one. Here it is, right here. You know, kids today who do their homework and get assigned projects, they have no idea how hard it is to be old like you and me I'll run right? Like, when, if you got assigned a project like Continental Drift or something in geography, you had to go to the library, and, like, get on the card catalog and look up Continental Drift. And then there'd be an inscrutable number, like B701-43GX. And you'd be like, I should be writing a paper on that number. I have no idea what. Right, but anyway, blah, blah, blah. You decipher the whole thing. And then finally you get to the, that uh, stack and you get a book on Continental Drift, right? That's how we used it. We didn't have the Google and g seven oh four five G seven x was Google for us, and uh, so so we'd do that, but when you had to go to the library back in the day to get your information, there were actually two levels of curation functioning the the first The first level of curation happened at the at the level of purchasing because books are expensive, and libraries have a limited budget, and so somebody would have to make the decision: what are the two absolute best books on continental drift what, what what are they and and so somebody would do some research and find out well these scholars are the, considered the best in their field they're the most credible these books have you know been so well received okay and so those are the books we buy so the purchaser was the, the first line of curation and then the second line of curation was the librarian itself because here's a news flash nobody actually knew how to use the card catalog nobody there's not a single, single person in the universe who knows how to use the card catalog. So, so you go to the card catalog, you look it all up, and then you go, I don't know what this means, and you go talk to the librarian. And what you just do is you ask her for the best two books on whatever it is you're interested in, how to grow tomatoes, how to train your dog, what is continental drift. And she, she understands that, and she takes you, and, and you get your two books. And so two levels of curation, the purchaser and the librarian herself. That's that's curation, and it means that it's not perfect, but it means that by and large you get good, curated, reliable, tested information. And there is absolutely nothing like that when it comes to the internet. Any wackadoodle now can write a blog or an article, and if he or she knows anything about what's called SEO, search engine optimization then their article can be the first article you see whenever you put your search into Google, regardless of whether it has any worth or merit. I don't know if you understand that. And, and you can sort of bypass the normal algorithm by paying money to, to Google to prioritize your article. That, so th- that's the new world. And so looking for information on the Internet is a little bit like bobbin' for apples in a public toilet. You, you might come up with something good, but the odds are not in your favor. <laughs> right? Just putting that out there. We need internet literacy. Can I tell you, when I talk to pastors today uh, and, I, and I ask them, you know, what, what's causing you trouble, what's stressing you out, the, usually in the top two or three things they'll tell me is th- this very issue. They they feel that their churches are being divided, and and undermined constantly by internet preachers and bloggers. So you think about the dynamic. You you listen to about forty to forty five minutes every week from your board approved, and board held accountable uh, preacher, forty five minutes. But there are people in this congregation who are listening to eight, ten, twelve. 20 hours a week of internet preachers and and reading internet bloggers. Nobody in here knows who they are. Nobody knows whether they're trustworthy or not. That's a huge issue. Churches 30 years ago used to split when either a pastor or an elder went sideways and they took people with them. But now it's like every sideways pastor and elder in the universe is whispering in our people's ears, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's an absolute jungle out there. And the internet has brought all of these dangers into intimate and immediate contact with our people at the touch of a button. It's a huge factor. It's hard to be a good listener today. Because there is just so much content and so little curation. Which leads to the final factor I want to draw your attention to here. It's hard to be a Berean today because of individualism. These people, the, the Bereans in the story, they were listening together, right? I don't know if you noticed that. They didn't receive Paul's message at home, right, as a link they could click that they could listen to through their earbuds while they rode the subway to work, looking up passages perhaps on their phone. That's not what it says. Acts 17, 11 to 12 says, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So those are all plural terms. And actually, in the Greek, it's far more explicit than in the English. The the, the word there that I've underlined, examining, is actually a nominative plural masculine participle. You don't need to be a... You know, Greek whiz to understand that. It just means that the they there, it's a plural participle, they is implied. It's not saying that he or she examined these things, it's saying they examined these things. This was a corporate or congregational endeavor from start to finish. That's just not how we do things anymore today, is it? We do most of our listening on our own, we do most of our thinking on our own. That's part of the problem. It's hard for us to be like the Bereans because we don't have the same instincts as the Bereans had. When they heard something new or challenging, they would come together and, and, and they would listen together and they would speak to this matter together and they would study together. Our instinct is to pop in the earbuds and go for a walk in the woods, and get some inner clarity. And it's amazing what you'll hear on those walks in the woods, it's, it's just amazing generally the sort of answers you get when you're only asking questions of yourself. And that takes us back full circle because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can know it. All right, so that's why it's so hard. That's why there are so few Bereans in our day and age as there have been in every day and age. Remember, this this was rare. Even in the book of Acts, the Bereans stand out like a sore thumb as a particularly good and noble example of what it looks like to hear and discern the Word of God. So we've got a high bar, but there are resources that the Scripture points us to that can allow us to make progress. So let's talk about those. How can we be more like the Bereans? Or to put it more simply, how can we become better listeners? That's the question I want to end with. Given how hard it is, and we've just laid out some of the challenges. Obviously, I think the first thing we need to do is pray for ears to hear. Pray for ears to hear. If human beings are bad listeners, right? if we're coming out of the womb as bad listeners, if if we're born into this world with a built-in defense mechanism against the Word of God, then we need help. We need grace. We need some kind of Divine intervention to kickstart this process. In the Bible, after after the fall, there is a sense in which listening is a gift. Moses said to the people of Israel near the end of his life, He said, But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, or eyes to see, or ears to hear. I think that's one of the most important verses in the Bible in terms of understanding the development of salvation, right? So just because people stopped listening doesn't mean that God stopped speaking. Praise the Lord. Right? Isn't that kind of like, really, that's just the same point that's made in Genesis chapter 3 where people turn away from God and who goes looking for who? God goes looking for them. He's speaking, but they're what? Hiding. And so that's cool. There's this major theme in the Bible where we turned away from God, but he didn't turn away from us. He kept speaking. He kept calling, but we didn't hear very well. We We didn't have, something extra was needed. So just the word of God, and boy, doesn't it feel weird to put the word just the word of God? Just the word of God wasn't enough because now they developed this ability to deflect and to distort and to self-deceive. But thanks be to God, God God kept speaking. But then as the story goes on, as you keep reading your Bible and you get to Jesus, you see that now this grace of, of helped hearing is Entering into the world through the person of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus would often end his sermons by saying, have you ever noticed this? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And you ever like, Jesus, how many not-ear people do you know? Like there's that one guy, right, who got in the cheese slicing accident, right? But like, how many, how many people are you preaching to that don't have ears? But this is Jesus kind of riffing off of what Moses said in Deuteronomy 29. He's saying, hey, listen, I'm here to help you hear. Are you hearing Oh, if you're hearing, blessed are you, blessed are you that you've come under my grace. That's why he would often say to his disciples who stuck around afterward to ask questions, he'd say, oh, blessed are your eyes for they see. Blessed are your ears when they hear. And every time they got something right. Do you remember uh, Jesus says, you know, "Who who do the people say that I am? And Peter gets it right kind of. He's like, you know, you are the blessed one, son of the most high God. And, and what does Jesus say? Way to go, Peter. You really, you really worked hard on that. You did your homework. You parsed your Greek. Way to go, buddy What did he say? Oh, Simon, blessed are you for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father is in heaven. You remember that? Hearing is a gift. It's a gift. It's a grace. And so if you want to hear, if you want to be a good and noble listener, if you're sitting here going, I want to get it. I want to hear God. Then pray. Ask God to give you a seeing eye, a hearing ear, and a believing heart. That's always been true, right? You've probably noticed, right? I'm trying to move from the general to the specific here. That's always been true, but can I just say that that is all the more true in our day and age? You've heard me refer, um, I'm sure, many more times, many times in the past, to uh, the Catholic philosopher Charles Taylor. I call him a Catholic philosopher, but because he is, but um, he, he doesn't write Catholic philosophy, so to speak. He's actually he's a philosopher and a sociologist, but he happens to be Catholic. And he's done a lot of work trying to explain how our culture, Western culture, how Western culture went from a place where Christianity was really the root and core of it, the foundation of it, to the place now where it's been pushed to the margins, and we actually seem to be in this final stage where it's being pushed right off the plate. And And you know, we, people today tend to live in their moment of time. Uh, the old days for us is 1960, right? Uh, so we, we we tend to have a very narrow view of history. But we don't seem to realize how much the world has changed over just, really just 150 years. And so Charles Taylor kind of zooms out and he says, I just want you to understand what's happened here. He says, you go back, you know, just before, let's take 150 years, whoop, you go back before that chunk, And he says, do you understand that in this culture, it was basically impossible not to believe? There was so much cultural momentum, so many forces and institutions pushing you in the direction of faith, that the chance, I mean, let's think about it, 300 years ago in England or Germany or or, or wherever, in in the Western world, 300 years ago, it's pretty much impossible that you would have woken up one day and said, you know what, I don't think I believe in God. Uh, You know what, I think we're all just computers made of meat. And you know what? I think the universe is meaningless. And you know what? I'm going to decide today my own morality. There's like a statistically close to zero possibility of that happening. Why? Because you went to church like the seventh day you were born, and then probably two to three times every week thereafter until you died. Your teachers at school were probably priests or nuns, right? Or if you, were, if you grew up in a Protestant part of the world, you know, they were probably deep, deeply religious you know, pastors or, or whatever, there, was, there, was, there were no contrary voices in the culture, or very few. That was true until about 150 years ago. And then 150 years ago, it started to change. Uh, we often talk about how it was Charles Darwin who made atheism intellectually respectable. At least, gave, if you wanted to argue that, that people were basically just highly evolved monkeys or computers made of meat, Charles Darwin at least gave you a system for so doing. And and so for the last 150 years, Taylor says, we've lived in an environment where it was possible to believe or possible not to believe. Both were viable options. I would say I grew up in that world. I grew up in maybe the, the closing hours of that world. I remember as a kid, I didn't feel any pressure one way or the other when I was making these decisions. Because it wasn't like my whole school system was contrary to faith. In fact, the principal of the public school where I went to school was a Christian guy. I'd say maybe 30 or 40% of the teachers were Christian. Not the majority, but certainly not an insignificant minority. I felt zero pressure one way or the other. I felt like I was looking at option A and option B and going, you yeah, know, yeah, option B works for me. My mom and dad are believers. Uh, people at church are believers. I'm on board. Seems to make sense. Universe, right. Jesus, Bible, awesome. Done. Let's go. That, that, was, that was my, my world. Now, do you understand that is not the world that your kids are operating in today? And, and so now philosophers and sociologists say that we've moved into what's called negative world. Negative world is where all the institutions and all the cultural pressure is actually pushing people the other way, away from faith. And so Charles Taylor says we've gone from impossible not to believe to possible to believe, possible not to believe, to today, impossible to believe. Impossible to believe. Essentially, statistically, impossible to believe. That's the world. We're like fish now, right? Because we're traveling in this big school of fish, and we're all going together, and we're in this current. It's a very strong current, and so we're going this way. And it's hard to hear a little voice, this still small voice, speaking to us over the left hand shoulder. Left hand shoulder. Because even if you pop your head up to be like, what was that? The fish behind you is going to crack into the back of your head and give you a concussion. And the current is just going to drag you to the point where you can't hear it anyway. That's the situation right now. We're in a group of people. All our people are walking in the direction of unfaith. All our teachers at school, all our friends on the internet, all our social media influencers, they're all walking in the direction of unfaith. And so the still small voice, boy, if you even try to listen to it, you get knocked unconscious by the crowd. And so all the more, this, this has to start with grace. Grace. All the more. Because God can reach down and grab a little fish out of the current and out of the school of fish and just pop you up and give you still waters and quiet space to hear. But you got to ask. It begins this grace. So I'm saying that's always been true. But, boy, ever, is it true today. And, and if you're here today and, and you're thinking, well, yeah, that does feel like me. I feel like I'm caught up in something. I feel like I've never really been given these questions a decent study. Then I would say start there. Just pray. Really cool things happen when you say in your heart, God, if you are there, help me to hear. Really cool things happen when you do that. Start there. Second thing you need to do is become part of a listening group. Of course, that's that's part of what the church is. The church is more than that, but the church is not less than that. The church is a listening group. And as fallen human beings who are living in a very individualistic culture, so there's all this momentum going the other way. We need that. We need to read the Word of God in a circle with other people so that our bias and the bias of the culture is not allowed to overpower the text. In a sense, joining a group is an act of self-awareness. Do you understand? I wonder if you understand how powerful an impulse is your inner desires, your inner biases and self-deceptions are when it comes to hearing and discerning truth. The English writer and philosopher Aldous Huxley should be given credit for his self-awareness. In his book, Ends and Means, which he wrote near the end of his life, he said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. Meaning, consequently assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption for myself the philosophy of meaningless was essentially an instrument of liberation sexual and political wow that's good self-awareness now there's a technical term for that the technical term is post hoc justification Post-hoc justification uh, sociologists, psychiatrists will talk about this. They'll say basically what happens is uh, we actually make most of our decisions on the basis of deep-rooted animal desire. I want to have sex with a, a large number of people. Or I want to be as rich and powerful as humanly possible. I want to be famous and whatever. You start with your deep desire. And then what you do is you actually construct a worldview that sounds plausible but you don't actually make any attempt to prove it. You just believe it and present it as a justification for how you've decided to live. True word of a lie, anthropologists will tell you, this is how most people make decisions. They convince themselves that they're independent thinkers. No, no, I arrived at that. No, you didn't. You wanted to go this way, so you concocted a narrative that justified your going this way. Now, we all know that's true. Oh, said we all uh, Anthropologists will tell you they know this is true. Psychiatrists will tell you they know this is true. Most people don't know this is true. They don't realize that they're doing this. So credit to Aldous Huxley for saying, you know what, as I look back over my life, I'll tell you what, it looks like I wanted to be a political rebel. It looks like I wanted to be a sexual libertarian. So I made up a world where that was not only possible, but permissible, but laudable. Credit to him. his self-awareness. Now, that self-awareness didn't result in Aldous Huxley joining a small group, but I hope that it motivates you to consider doing that. Bottom line is this. When you read the Bible as a fallen human being, your particular lusts and political commitments will lens how you read and interact with the text. It will cause you to overlook certain passages. Have you ever caught yourself doing that? Where you read a passage in the Bible and you think, you know, I bet you I've read that a hundred times. I've never really noticed it. Yes. And do you know why? Because it does not fit your narrative. And you're very good at not seeing those things. And yet there are other verses that seem to come out of your mouth every other day. Like, you know, judge not lest ye be judged. Right? Everyone's got that memorized in the King James Version. Because that verse fits your narrative. And your narrative is, I'm an independent, autonomous individual capable of making my own decisions. Shut your mouth. Right? And so, so that's what happens when we read the Bible individually. We see the verses that fit our worldview, and we somehow manage not to see those that don't. So you got read to the, read the Bible in, in community. See, because here's how it works. If you're sitting next to somebody with different lusts and political commitments then between the two of you, you've got a fight and chance of seeing what's actually there in the text. So it's very helpful. Now, I think that reality makes a strong argument for two things. Number one, church membership, and number two, small groups. I think it's a strong argument for church membership because you need someone in your life with authority to question how you are hearing and responding to the text and to question when you are listening to things that are not helpful. And that's what church membership is. Church membership is you giving the group authority, which is usually exercised primarily through a designate body of elders that you appoint. Right? So these are leaders you appoint. But you give them authority so that they can hold you accountable for how you're listening and how you're living. And fallen people tend to need that. I mean, unless your heart has been less affected by the fall than the rest of us, you need that. And then I think it's also a strong argument for small groups or or, uh, adult learning classes or some kind of micro-community learning experience. It's just helpful, whatever you want to call it, it's helpful to sit in a circle or around a table or in a room with Bibles on your laps where any question is fair game, where we can hear perspectives, where we can interact, where we can wrestle together as a group. When you do that, the weight of personal and cultural bias is diminished. We need that. Because of who we are, because of what sin has done to us, and because of the particular times that we're living in. So pray for ears to hear, join a listening group, and then lastly, start and end with Holy Scripture. Of course, that's the primary lesson that we're supposed to take away from the passage, and rightly so. Luke tells us, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so that's the perfect balance, isn't it? They were open-minded, but not so open-minded that their brains fell out. They, they took everything they heard, and they tested it against the prophecies, principles, and parameters of Holy Scripture. That's exactly right. And that is the practice that we will need to commit to if we are to remain a faithful gospel-preaching culture-reaching church in the years and decades to come. We can't avoid the fact that we live in a confusing world. We can't shut out the culture. You know, I will confess to you that I have prayed that the Lord would crash the internet. <laughs> I usually pray that when I'm having a hard time with my kids. Right? Because it's just, you know, how do I compete with that? I talk to them for half an hour after dinner. We open our Bibles together. Right? Drag them to church and, and all that. And, but then what? Like eight hours a day? this. I have literally prayed that God would crash the internet. I have prayed that he would crash the electrical grid because I don't know how else you get rid of the internet. Anyway, the Lord has not listened to those prayers. (laughs) And so, until that happens, we need to be better at discerning. We need to be better at discerning the voice of God among the rush and crash of other voices. We need to start with the Word of God. We need to read the Bible. Before we watch the news, can I tell you, a flag goes up for me when people are offended by what the preacher or what the Bible says because it conflicted what they heard on the news, and I don't care what news station you listen to, but that's just a flag for me. I wonder, are you offended when the news conflicts your pastor or your Bible, or does the offense only run the other way? See, because sometimes it's the order of operations, right? I'm not against you watching the news, but do you watch the news through the lens of your Bible? Or do you read your Bible through the lens of the news? So we got to start with the Bible. you got to read the Bible before you flip on the news, before you get on the bus, before you go to work or go to school. you got to start with the Scriptures. And we need to take everything that we hear out there back to the Scriptures, as did the Bereans. We need to begin and end with the Word of God. Because the grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we confess our frailty today. Our minds are sick. Our minds are fallen. We thank you for the renewing and restoring grace of God in Jesus Christ. We thank you for how our hearts soften under his love and influence. We thank you for how they are filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can begin to cry, Abba, Father, so we can reopen this dialogue between ourselves and our creator. Lord, that's what we lost in the fall, and that's where our healing and restoration will begin, when we can hear your voice again. But there's lots of noise, and so while we wait for your return, help us to be more like the Bereans. Help us to be better listeners. Help us to be mindful of our frailty, to be mindful of the influences we are subjected to and to stand strong and confidently on the unchanging word of God. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.